Welcome to After the Bell with your host, Laura. This podcast is a series of conversations with educators, leaders, and lifelong learners with the hope of deconstructing some of the stereotypes around education. My objective as a teacher is to focus on the passion, humanity, and hope around education and to provide a platform for the myriad of voices that have something to say and teach us all. If you would like to know more about me, please head to my Instagram page at educatinglaura. Hello all, I'm so sorry that this one has been uploaded a little bit later than normal, but if you are a teacher in Victoria and any other state in Australia, you know that this has been a very hardcore reporting time, assessing time, and unfortunately with little kids in the middle of winter, we have all been a little bit sick. So my son is on the way out of a throat infection, my daughter has had a virus, and it's just been one of those times where I was kind of hoping I'd just get to the end of term and I didn't quite make it. So I don't know if this is age or what, but I just feel as though sometimes I just have to stop rather than just continuing to the finish line. And um, yeah, it's certainly the lesson that I have been getting over and over this year. This conversation is with Naomi from Queering the Curriculum, and she was probably one of my first Instagram follows back in, well, probably about a year ago now when I started my Instagram page. And I've always been interested in getting perspectives that are not my own or experiences that I haven't had and to just open my mind to the people that might be sitting in my classroom, to the curriculum that I haven't taught. And so she has always been a really generous Instagram pal. I've asked her about representation, how I can be a better ally, and she speaks all about those things in this episode. Not only is Naomi passionate about incorporating more LGBTQIA plus perspectives, but she also is doing a second master's in gifted education. And so we speak a lot about that and how we can change curriculum to be true enrichment rather than just busy work for those gifted students. I have had a student on that I taught years ago who is actually now a doctor and he was a gifted student and the episode is called balance is the gift if you want to go and have a listen to what it is actually like to be a gifted student and how it can actually be unclear because oftentimes they get bored and um, actually act out anyway it's a good episode to listen to if you're interested in getting a gifted student's perspective if you enjoy the episode please share it on social media tag me at educating laura and naomi at querying the curriculum i have a whole heap of resources in terms of representation and, and text that you can look at for both queer identification as well as gifted information in the show notes if you want to support the podcast feel free to buy me a virtual coffee the information is in the show notes otherwise enjoy this episode and everybody in australia and probably the world actually i'm thinking most people are heading into holidays now enjoy the holiday i hope you have a great rest and recuperation and i have some fabulous episodes coming for you Hello, Naomi. How are you? Good, thanks. And yourself? So, so good. I'd love to start asking you what you were like as a student. Look, you know that kid that you think probably shouldn't do VCE or academics? I was that. Okay. I was failing school before I was even 16. People were like encouraging me to go down a vocational pathway. So I started to go down that pathway. And then one day it was like the light just turned on. And I went from being a kid that was getting E's to getting A pluses. 
So what happened? How did that, how, <laughs> how did the light go on? <laughs> it was actually really interesting because my dad's a teacher too and he said it was literally like one day I just got it. Mm. For me, it was definitely teachers. Okay. It was teachers that suddenly like put in effort. They bothered to get to know me, get to know how I learned, taught me that I could do it. And then all of a sudden I was, I just loved it. I loved education. And when was that? At what time in your educational experience? Approaching 16. So towards the end of year 10. Yeah. I completed my paperwork to leave school. And my dad said to me, look, are you really sure you want to do this? And I'm like, maybe I should just stick it out for one more year. And if it gets really hard, then I can always switch. And he was like, yeah, yeah, give it a go. And my mom was great. She was like, I don't mind what you do as long as you're happy. And so I decided to stay on for another year and then another year, and then I became a teacher. <laughs> and you're currently doing a master's too, which we'll get to. Yeah. So you're still learning. Oh, look, I think I'll always be learning. I, I love it. I love studying and I love actually teaching as well. I think it's just great. It makes me a better teacher. So tell me about the teachers that had that impact on you, because that's a big impact to be going from ease and leaving school, not enjoying school to getting the best out of you. What happened? What were those teachers like? I had numerous negative teachers as well as positives, Mm. but the positive ones are the ones I remember the most. And funny story, I actually work with the teacher that made me suddenly change. Yeah. She's actually probably one of my best friends now. Like she was quite a young teacher and she was the first teacher that kind of said to me, you actually can do this. You're very, very smart and you understand things. You just learn differently. And so she was the first teacher that was that bothered to get to know me and spent time developing skills. And when I was doing my undergrad, you know, I'd call her up and be like, oh, I had this lesson. It didn't go right. How do I fix it? And she would take me through it. She shared her resources. And now I sit next to her at work. And I love that. it's just so surreal. It's so surreal. What was not happening in the classroom for you that had to change for you to understand that you were a good learner? What were the strategies? I think it was firstly people's attitudes towards me because mm. I'm quite a comedy queen and in the classroom I could kind of laugh things off. I was that kid who was, if I didn't understand something, I would try and derail it. Mm. Highly emotional. So I was feeling all these different things. I didn't know how to channel it. So it was getting teachers to actually work with me to develop those skills. And I feel like now in the contemporary context, we do it a lot more. We actually bother to sit down and say, all right, let's regulate these emotions. Let's learn how to work with that. But no one ever did. So I always felt like I was exploding. Mm. And, you know, I had teachers that thought that I couldn't read and I couldn't write, but I was actually an avid reader. I loved reading. It's just I wasn't going to do that in a social setting. So that pretty much just taught me that learning was cool. Mm. It was empowering. And as soon as I got that, it was just like, yes, this is my thing. I have spoken to... I'm going to say more old school educators who believe in mm. discipline first and I'm mm. not for that. I'm much more for the idea that the behaviour is a symptom of something else and if we can get mm. to that, the symptom will go away. And it's funny because I feel as though there's quite a clash within the people who believe that they need to respect you. The way to respect you is to come down hard, to be disciplinarian and to be reactionary to that kind of behaviour. Mm. Whereas it just, it's never sat well with me and it still doesn't sit well with me because I feel like you're punishing someone for hurting or for not being able to work something out or not having a skill, like you're saying about being quite emotional and not being able to regulate that. Well, if you're not telling them how to regulate that and then you're punishing them for having those feelings, 
there's so much damage and trauma and shame that goes along with that kind of behavior yeah and for me I had that happen all the time Mm. so all it did was make me more and more disengaged and there was actually a conversation in year eight where my principal said to me look I'm not sure if this school's for you here are the days Mm. to leave and it didn't make a difference because I was like that's fine for me because it's better for me to be away from here yeah. It didn't matter what discipline I received because the attachment wasn't there. It didn't mean anything. But when my favorite teacher said, hey, Naomi, you're not pulling your weight, it stung. And I tell you what, I worked harder. So for me, and that's my teaching too, relationships come first. Mm. Know your students so you can differentiate. I think it's just know your students so you can regulate as well. Mm. And so that you can have that connection that makes them want to do better. And I think you're right. Understanding that there's nothing wrong with a bit of tough love for the right student. Yeah. In the right context, in the right way. Yeah. 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 It's got to mean something. What advice would you give to someone considering being a teacher and thinking about the kind of student that you could be for someone as well? Like how do we help teachers or people considering teaching to understand what it's really like? <laughs> you know what? This is this is interesting because I just made my partner essentially become the teacher. Um, okay. Give me like, a pitch. <laughs> yeah, by, yeah, by convincing her that it's the best thing in the world. I think with teaching and understanding the realities is that you've got to understand that you're never going to get everything done. Mm. That's okay. It's more about your intent. As long as you your intent is good and you are driven by the want to help kids, it's always going to be okay. And it's also okay to say, look, I need a bit of me time, can't get it done. And it's okay to communicate that because in our teaching profession, there's always going to be someone that will carry the slack for you. Mm. You don't have to do it all. Because I think when I came to teaching, I was trying to do so much. Mm -hmm. I was trying to tick every single box. And I look at my grads at work and they do the same thing. And I'm just like, no, you just need to focus on one core thing, your kids. From there, everything will fall into place. Yes. And I think too, it's funny, the best lessons for me have often been the ones that have just eventuated. You know, and you put so much emphasis on the resources you develop and learning all your curriculum. And sometimes a kid will throw something at you from left field that you're like, oh, let's explore that. And it's the best lesson. Absolutely. And sometimes the kids will tell you what it is to be a great teacher. Like I'm a big fan of saying to kids, hey, this isn't working. What would you recommend for me to do to fix this? Yes. And they'll tell you what they need. And I think we've been taught that that shows weakness. Whereas I think it shows strength and it shows the kids that they're allowed to make mistakes, but they need to own up to them Mm. and they need to address those mistakes. Plus it gives them a voice too. Mm. It makes them think that, I have a seat at this table. Absolutely. Tell me about the way teachers are trained. Is it done well or not? No, (laughs) to put it politely. I just think about my undergraduate studies and nothing prepared me for teaching. I know in my first year, they said, look, we can't tell you how to become a teacher. You know, which is great philosophical kind of Yoda story, but it didn't help me understand how to read a curriculum, yeah. how to work out grading systems, how to use, I don't know, things like Simon or Compass, stuff that we need. Mm-hmm. So I think whilst it's great that we have all this theory and philosophy in education, we do need to have a bit of balance practical side Mm. of things because otherwise it's far too overwhelming when kids when teachers go into the classroom and they're like I don't even know how to read the big curriculum yeah when I was studying it was VELS so the Victorian I don't even I can't even tell you what it stands for anymore (laughs) and they were using that acronym 
And I, I remember frantically yeah. lo- going through my resources, trying to find a glossary or something going, what does this, what is this acronym? I don't know what it means. And they were using it in a way in which I couldn't really pick it up from the context. And I sat for an entire tutorial not having any idea what they were talking about. And I didn't find out until I had to write a report in my first year of being a grad teacher. They're like the VELS levels. I'm like, okay, someone explain to me what a VELS level is, please. What is this? Yep. Yep. And also your portfolios. I put so much effort into my portfolio. Rocked up to my interview with my portfolio. My principal said, oh, look, no, we just wanted to get to know you. And there was this enormous portfolio that was like a good 10 kilos because yes. I needed beautiful, worth nothing. Yeah. Oh, how, how are we trained? Definitely needs improvement. <laughs> it would be so good to have a set of grad teachers for like a term or, or sorry, um, pre-service teachers for like a term and give them something to develop or give them an assignment or like a tutorial program or something to run that that is what they do. And if the school is set up from the timetables perspective to have them in, to create, mm. construct, deliver and reflect on something, some program, yep. because I think, you know, we create and construct curriculum that once you deliver it once, you'd know how flawed it is yeah. because you always rework curriculum the first year you've taught it mm. and you just don't have any idea how much more reworking things take once you start, once you start getting to the classroom. And I also think as well, doing something like that will actually show you how to measure growth as well. Yeah. Because a lot of the, the grads or, or the student teachers, they come in and then they leave before they even get to look at the assessment. They don't get a chance to really survey and have a conversation and be like, hey, what did I do well? It's kind of like they're in and out. And I feel like they get to introduce ideas, but they never get to stick it out. Well, yeah, because I think most units would be minimum six weeks, wouldn't they? And I think the maximum you would ever do on a round would be five weeks at a time, really. Mm. So you're right. They'd always miss either the intro or the assessment and then the reflection after. Yeah. Absolutely. How do you think your students would describe you? Probably really quirky from like my fashion sense down to my teaching style, passionate and probably intelligent, which I think is hilarious considering I feel like some of my jokes aren't that intelligent. They very much appreciate my intellect, which I like. (laughs) Why do you think they would call you intelligent? Why is that a word you would use despite the fact that you tell less intelligent jokes well they they say it a lot and I think what they often praise in my intelligence isn't so much in my domain like I'm an English teacher primarily but it's other things like knowing about politics and humanities and stuff like that they get really impressed with the stuff that I know and it all stems down to reading just that I'm a great reader and I love that sort of stuff they, they love it they love knowing about all the different things and I'm currently an obsessive gardener and even knowing about like my gardening they get really into it but it could be a distracting technique from my classroom but you know whatever. <laughs> I am so aware of the fact that the kids want to engage in that banter and that conversation to get you away from what you're supposed to be doing but at the same time it's finding that balance isn't it about how do we foster the relationships and the engagement mm. without going so far off the track that we're not doing anything. Yeah exactly. And usually I use it like a bargaining chip. I'm like, I'll answer your question after 10 minutes of you doing my work. That's a good one. That's a good one. Your info must be that engaging then, you know, (laughs) hanging off everything you're saying. If they're like, I'll do 10 minutes of essay writing. (laughs) (laughs) They mostly just like to hear the the stories of me in high school because I must give off the impression of being a real like school lover and a goody-goody in high school too. And so it throws their mind that I was naughty. So yeah, conversations about that. What have you been really impressed with? You've been at three different schools. Mm-hmm. 
What's something that one or all of your schools have done that you've thought is is really effective in teaching and learning? Well, I think for me, it'll always be my first school. I felt their teaching and learning model was exceptional. They really understood the importance to cater to individual kids, but they understood it was through curriculum. So whilst it was a smaller government school, like they didn't have enough physical space to really expand. Their programs really expanded. And their teaching was absolutely exceptional. And they continuously reflected on their curriculum, um, looked at ways to improve their curriculum. And I felt that just that practice was amazing. My former school, the one that I left from before this one, what I loved about their practice was just the investment in professional development, mm. coaching. It was amazing and understanding that teachers needed to be continuously invested in to get the best out of kids because I think sometimes people think that once you've got your degree you enter the classroom Mm -hmm. you're done and they really understood that it was continuous improvement keep investing keep investing my current school really is great in just leading us do our thing okay plus all right this is your classroom what do you want to do and then playing with that option of different teaching strategies, different teaching spaces, different assessment tasks. You know, it really has backed off in terms of what we're allowed to do in the classroom, which I really appreciate. Yeah, so not as much micromanaging from the top. Yeah, absolutely. You've worked in both public and private, haven't you? Yeah, and now Catholic. Okay, so all three, pros and cons. Mm. I mean, obviously they're specific schools, but considered generally Mm. the kinds of things that you think would move over you know, just yeah. in terms of different places? I think for me, with the government sector, I really have a passion for government schools. I mm-hmm. I love the flexibility and what you can do in terms of curriculum and text and the freedoms you get within the classroom. Like you're not worried about offending a certain stakeholder or someone in leadership. You've got the opportunity to really focus on developing relevant texts for kids. Whereas I find myself often quite restricted in other contexts where you've got to think about the stakeholders. In the private sector, the benefit is that you do get a lot more resources, I found. I also mm. find that the culture is quite prevalent within each of these schools. So you're already working with a great sense of community and unity. The only catch that I found with the private sector and part of my reason for leaving was the demand. Like my life mm. was marking. My life was my kids and I still have that same passion for my kids in the classroom. But I found as I was getting older, I'm like, I don't think I'm that old. Like I'm in my 30s. As I was getting older, it was harder to balance because then you start to, you know, have your own life. You want to further study. You want to take holidays. And I didn't want to compromise on the work either. So I don't know. It's it's a, it's a real like much of a muchness. Like they're all wonderful in their own way. I think for me, my heart is in government schools, just because the socialist to me says that we should have amazing government schools and education should be free and all that sort of jazz. But the reality is, it's such a big market, and the privatization of education. You know, there's reasons to go across into the private sector too. Mm. It's funny. I've always been in the government sector, but I was educated in the Catholic school, mm. so. I'm and I'm tutoring a lot of students from the private sector, mm. which I'm sure you can understand. <laughs> and seeing the amount of marking and feedback and the quick turnaround that they get, I don't mind doing that when it feels like it's from me. If that became mandatory, 
I would really struggle because the amount of marking you would have to do. The only thing I could think is that the class sizes must be smaller. Yeah. Because, you know, like I've got 24 in my year 12 class, I think. To be giving that kind of feedback with the time frame, you would be marking constantly. Yeah. That's what I was thinking when I when I look at the kind of feedback and it's not just a rubric, it's then a blow by blow of like their, their pracs or their essays, which again, I do at year 12, but I wouldn't do it to that level at year eight. Hmm. And that's what they're getting at year eight. Just trying to have that work-life balance, which... I think after COVID has become a real thing that people are looking at, including teachers, because I found myself during that time period, I was glued to my computer because that's all I had to do. And I found like it becomes quite obsessive again to just give feedback and give more feedback. Yes. Even my husband said prior to having kids, he was like, are you going to be sitting at home with your laptop on your lap? I used to every night. Every night I would maybe watch some rubbish on TV, but I always was working. There's always things to be doing, always marking. And I had very little balance. And I literally can't do that now because I have children to feed and look after and play with. But I have guilt now about the fact that I can't do that. So it is a really hard one to balance because I think most teachers come in and work an excessive amount. And it's very hard to pull back. Absolutely. And I think it's because we are good students. Mm-hmm. And so we still have that same kind of mindset and we're perfectionists and we're driven by performance and competition as well. So we get sucked into that because we do enjoy it. It's just we're burning ourselves out in the process. And we are like bleeding hearts too, I find. Most mm-hmm. teachers want to get the best out of their student. I remember my mm-hmm. very first year of teaching, I had this student that just did not like me. He was a science student, really enjoyed science, and I had him for English and he just we didn't gel. He hated my subject. And I went to his science teacher and said, how do I fix this? And he said Mm. to me, he was, he was quite an experienced teacher. He said, you cannot save them all. And I was so upset in my first year. I was like, what do you mean? Of course I can. Like I really believed that I could save them all. And you can't, unfortunately. And you also can't be that person to connect with all of them because you won't be. There might be another teacher that just will connect with them the way you can't. It's very hard. It's a bit of a blow to the ego when you kind of get into teaching. I I will be, I've said this on the podcast before, I will be that, what is it? Captain, my captain. (laughs) It was the Freedom Riders movie. I'm like, I'm going to be that. I'm going to be Erin. No. (laughs) And you know what, to be fair, you wouldn't want to because I, I'm sure that was a very glossy version of what actually happened in her classroom. Yeah, absolutely, particularly for that time period. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Tell me about your teaching philosophy. What do you think the role of a teacher is? Well, it's definitely changed over the last decade of me teaching. At first, I thought it was, you know, just to convey my content to the best of my abilities, to share my knowledge. And now for me, it's turned into empowering my kids and enlightening them through education. It's not my job to give them the knowledge. It is my job to give them the tools to find the knowledge. So that's definitely changed over the last 10 years. I think I finally understand what my role is as an educator. Yeah. What roles have you held in education and how long have you been teaching for now? So this will be my 11th year of teaching. I started teaching whilst that in the same year that I finished my degree so I was able to like be fast-tracked oh yeah yeah so I've been in student management I did DAV debating for a while I also was so I'm going through the in chronological order I did gifted learners leader 
was also a curriculum leader and a safe space manager. What was your favourite role? Probably either gifted learners leader or safe space manager. That was the best role. Can we start with the safe space? What is that? So the safe space role was born because actually a student who wasn't queer approached us about her concerns within the school. It was also in response to a series of suicides that had happened overseas. But she approached us, myself and another teacher, who had kind of subtly hinted that we were gay. And she approached us and she was like, look, you guys are really well respected with your sexuality. There is an issue with bullying in this school around LGBTIQ kids. I'm going to actually call them alphabet kids because I find it easier. And she's like, look, I've got this idea for a safe space. I've looked it up. Will you help me? And so we were like, yeah, absolutely. And so the first thing that we did was we went to the principal and we're like, look, this is what we want to do. And our principal was all for it. And they were like, you know what, let's do it. We will protect you. We will make sure that no one hurts you or gives you any grief. We'll do whatever you need. And so it just kind of went from there. And the safe space still exists at that school. So that's going on nearly 10 years. Wow. And what were you doing to support these students and to ensure it was, in fact, a safe space for them? So it really came from changing the culture. And so what we did with kids, and most of our kids were not queer identifying, um, we got them to look at the school policies. We looked at ways that we could change policy and we talked with the print and the executive team about how we can use policy to protect them. We decided that that was the first place to start so that we had documentation to make sure they were safe at school. We also had the wellbeing team come in and they did exceptional workshops. They did everything from dealing with coming out dealing with not knowing, dealing with gender, dealing with friendship breakdowns, talking to your family about how you feel. They even did sex ed. And that was such a big thing as well. And, you know, this was a school that also had a chaplain and he was part of it too. Wow. For him, it didn't make a difference and it still doesn't make a difference. So there was a great sense of unity behind it all. So the kids would tell us what they needed and would deliver it. We had minus 18 come out and speak to them. We had other queer representatives come out and speak to them. We had our local MP come and speak to them about their rights within the community. It was probably the most empowering couple of years of my life. How was that information delivered? I'm trying to think Mm. logistically here. So was it done in large group assemblies? Was it done in tutorial programs? When were you giving out this information? When were they having these workshops? So we kept it very much about choice. Um, we had oh. lunch times um, every single week and it was in like this, it was actually a really tactful position. It was in a room that was still like you could see, still see through it, like it was still child safe, but it was kind of tucked away. So if a kid wanted mm-hmm. their identity kind of secret, it was fairly easy to do so. It was also really close to like a, a staff room. So we you know, had that great feeling of, oh, we're all going to collaborate and sit down and be friends. And staff members would come in all the time as well and say, hey, just letting you know I really support you guys. So it was that's impactful. nice. You made the comment that you had inferred mm. that you were queer identifying. Mm. I've come from a school where I think I've had one openly gay male teacher but openly gay to staff alone I don't know if students knew and when I was at high school as I said to you before I was at a Catholic school there were two teachers that 
were dating and one of them was asked to leave the school. Oh. Yeah. Your face is like, what do you mean? <laughs> and one staff member fell pregnant without being married and was asked to leave. So oh. my experiences, yeah, my experiences, I literally had my year 12 say to me the other day, did I change my name when I got married? And I said, yes. And they were like, why? I thought, yeah, this is the thing. Like society mm. is changing so much. Like it wasn't for me a question. I was like, yeah, of course I'll change my name. Mm. Now society is just not what it was. Yeah. But how do you infer that you are gay and feel comfortable? How, yeah, how do you go about that in a school? Uh, look, this is something that I really do struggle with even now, which is part of the reason, mm. and we'll talk about later, why I created queer in the curriculum. Yes. At my first school, I felt really safe. What had actually happened was a fellow staff member who knew me fairly well outside of work had accidentally spoken about my partner in front of a student. And then my I spoke to my student afterwards and I'm like, look, I'm sorry you had to hear that. Yeah. Um, I hope you don't hold it against me. And she oh. just, she said, I'm so sad by that. And she just cried. Yeah. And we had this conversation of, you know, it's a hard thing to be a queer teacher because you look at history, people have continuously inferred that, you know, queer people are pedophiles, queer people are supposed to be feared, that we're perverts. And so the last thing I wanted was to have that title attached to me. And it was definitely something that I had a conversation with with the principals before we spoke about being part of the group because we knew by being part of the group we were going to be associated with that and we would instantly be outed. And our prints were brilliant. And they were like, that is ridiculous. Having said that, I was yeah. really fortunate in that school. That is a unique kind of environment. It's also the fact that, like, sometimes it's just not kids' business. Yeah. But the issue is, I think, like, with hetero couples, people who are married in their classic relationships, you guys can say, oh, my husband is going to be late tonight. Or when I married my husband, whereas I don't get that luxury. So the way I hear it is I'll be like, my partner and I hope for the best that the kids pick it up. Okay. Or I keep that part to myself. And I think that's part of the reason why the kids are so interested in my personal life is because I don't deliver that much because I don't feel always safe enough to do that. So it really is about safety for you and fearing judgment. Mm. Is that the right way of putting that? Absolutely. And prejudice. Mm. Because as much as we have definitely evolved, there are certain areas that haven't evolved. That previous school was closer to the city. And I definitely feel like that's a different environment entirely. Yeah. Whereas now I currently work down the southeast, which definitely is progressive or becoming more progressive. But then you have that clash of tradition and the, you know large amount of cultures. Some cultures are really religious and they still view like queer identities as some type of evilness or a sin to be feared. So you've got that clash. You just don't know what environment you're going to be in. Yes. Can I ask, was it always clear to you that that was what your identity was? Oh, no, 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 not at, not at all. Like I look at some people who knew that they were a lesbian at a really, really young age and I just have so much envy. I went through about 10 years of just being a mess and wondering why yeah, okay. it didn't fit. And because there was no queer characters on TV or in the books I read, I just I couldn't connect it. And then my sister actually, who was far more progressive than I ever was, yeah. she took me to a... I think it must have been like a, a queer party or something that was run with university. So my sister, two years older, a bit naughty, would take me to these older venues as an underage person. And I saw like lesbians for the first time ever. And I was like, wow, that's 
that's actually kind of interesting. That okay, maybe that's what's missing. And even then, it was for another ten years. It was oh, but I still like that gender too, and things aren't as clear. Yeah. So it was just this about fifteen years trying to work it out. Let's talk about representation mm. because as a white blonde heterosexual <laughs> female. I have been very heavily represented, you know. It's not something that I have considered often and I want to see the other side and I want to be better. And, in fact, that's the reason, Naomi, that I reached out to you in the first place. I was saying to you before recording, you would have been one of the first hundred people that I followed on Instagram because your handle is querying the curriculum. I'm like, I want to know everything. I want to be an ally. I want to know exactly. And we've had the most awesome conversations where you're like, you could just do this. Yeah. And I think, you know what? I assume it's this big thing that I have to do in order to step up to be this ally. And it's really something I could do very easily. Yeah. So let's talk about representation in the curriculum. So with querying the curriculum, I really think it's more about little things. It's having a question that has two boys who are married or two women that are married or maybe a genderless person or, you know, even when a kid says, you know, my girlfriend and they're also female, just going with it. Don't even react. Yes. When you do your short story collections, I think this is a classic example. Putting in a queer story and not making a big deal out of it. Like queer identity is very important, but I think for me personally, it's more about just being treated the same. And I think when yeah. you blow it up into this enormous thing, being like, all right, guys, for creative writing, we're going to talk about queer people, it becomes bigger than anything else, where if it's just something subtle, like a sneaky short story about a queer character or looking at maybe a notable person in history who was also queer, that suddenly takes away the fear that's associated with being queer. Like I'm an English teacher, so I'm always going to praise queer books and all that sort of stuff. There are so many amazing queer YA as well, talking to your librarians about maybe setting up a little section or getting more yeah. thin, little rainbow label on the side or you can be even more discreet than that so kids can actually see what's on the shelves as well tends to help. That is such a great idea. It's funny because when I first did literature, mm. the literature course that I did was like mixed bag of things. I remember doing The Heart of Darkness. Mm-hmm. I remember doing Starship Troopers. I did the picture of Dorian Gray. So it's all these random things. And then we also did, it was called Head On. It's a film with Alex Dimitriatis and he is a traditional Italian Catholic man who is queer identifying and really struggles with that. It was great. I don't know if you've ever seen it. No, is that from like the 90s? Yeah. Yeah, I, maybe I have seen it a while ago. Yeah, it's quite explicit, uh, just putting that out there. Probably not something you'd put in a, in a high school, but... That was one of my first things that I'd seen in terms of curriculum. And we also then did, it's called Monkey's Mask, which is the lesbian poetry. And to be honest, for me, I hadn't seen it before. Yeah. So I was kind of like, what do I do with this? Yeah. And because it was the first time I'd seen it, as I said, Catholic girls school, we did not put that in the curriculum. And I think you're right. I was so hung up on the fact that it was curriculum and text that I'd never seen before and I didn't know what to do with it that it actually hindered some of my ability to see the beauty in the texts Mm. absolutely like I look at someone like Marilyn Hacker and her sonnets her sonnets are amazing and they're amazing not because she's a lesbian they're amazing because they're sonnets Mm. about grocery shopping and you know they've got beautiful imagery 
I think if you just take away the fear and just make it a really beautiful text, that makes it easier. And then as you get more confident, then talking about queer identity, because queer identity is fantastic. Like the coming out experience is so unique. Only queer people have that. I mean, I've never seen a sexual person come up to me and be like, guess what, I'm straight. Only (laughs) queer people do, and we do it all the time. And that's such a unique thing. Yeah, you're right. You would have to come out over and over. You get a new job, you meet new people. Like there's that constant coming Mm. out, isn't there? Yeah. And like even in this conversation, like you, you've you known that I'm queer because you've inferred it, but I directly had to say it. So yeah. it's even just little things like that. Or when someone asks me what my husband do, switching it to my partner does this, you know, it's again, coming out. What is that like for you? Petrifying. Is it exhausting? It's, is it? Okay. It's exhausting and petrifying. I mean, now I'm kind of quite confident with it. And I sometimes find a little bit of delight in the shock. Okay. But it's really exhausting because you're continuously thinking about the person who's receiving the information and they don't really think about you either. It's it's fascinating that the tolerance is coming from the person delivering the revelation and not the person receiving it. Yeah. I've had one ex-student come out to me. Yeah, he was he was a lot older and he asked to see me. And I just had a baby at the time. So he came over to my house and we'd had this really long conversation and I was asking about, you know, do you have any other blah, blah, blah. And he was like, yeah, my partner this. And he, he waited for my husband to leave the house. And then he said to me, yeah, he said to me, I wanted to tell you that I'm gay. And I I just, honestly, I just, I I put my daughter down who was about six months old. I got up and I gave him a hug and I said, I'm so happy for you. That's so great. And then he said, because he, we, the conversation had kind of petered out and he was still kind of there and I'm sort of going, what's happening? And he said to me, I wasn't quite sure how your husband felt. And I thought you shouldn't ever. And of course that's my, Mm. that's a privileged position to be in, to think, shouldn't have to worry about what he would think he's fine anyway but you shouldn't have to worry about it's your identity it's your life but it is that isn't it that constant consideration of and also I love I don't love but Mm. the fact that you've made that comment about safety am I actually safe right now in this situation to be my my true self and that's full-on consider that all the time absolutely and if you really think about the figures of how many kids are probably queer in your classroom and when I say the word queer, I mean broad. I mean gender, sexuality, everything. You've got a decent amount and those people are always having that in the back of their head. And it's like how do you focus on work and doing really well when you're having a silent identity crisis and you are so scared of people knowing? I will say it is getting better and I've definitely seen it in my school, um, which I think is really interesting because it, you know, it is um, a Catholic school, but this is showing the change. It's getting better, but it's still scary. Mm. I remember one of the things that we were talking about at our school, because we have a safe space as well, Mm. was things like bathrooms. How do you allow somebody who is trans Mm. to go to the bathroom in which they identify when there is so much fear Mm. around that? And what are your thoughts around things like that? How do we what kind of things can we do to support because the other thing I know people said we can't say go to the disabled Mm. because that was the thing is this question about the labeling yeah and wanting to do the right thing 
you know, what are your thoughts around things like that? I think that is such a hard issue and I haven't fully got my understanding on it. For us in the past, it was always ask the student what they want. And unfortunately, Mm. some of them, they feel better being in the disabled toilet, which is terrible. I hate to think that they would think that their gender or sexuality is a disability. If there's anything wrong with having a disability, but I just think that language alone is not okay. Yes. When they're treated like it's a weakness rather than a strength, which is what it is, I think we definitely need to work it out. I think we, I think this needs to be a policy thing. I think this needs to be an investigation by the Department of Education as to how best to cater to our trans kids because I really do feel like that this is one area where we are failing. The toilets, yes. the beginning part of the conversation, even the uniform as well as a problem. Like schools now, they allow girls to wear dresses and pants, but then they'll enforce dresses on formal days. So it's like it looks like it's inclusive, but then it's not. We're inclusive when it suits, but when it's on this time frame, when it's on our heteronormative time frame, it doesn't suit. So my answer is I don't know, but it's just got to be better. It's just got to be better. I agree. And that's the thing, like I... I'm sure I've said things that have not been perfect mm. because it hasn't been my experience. But the whole point is that I'm trying to learn and to try and, and try and shine a light having you here and to help yeah. everybody understand that it isn't easy, but it's also understanding the things that you, you can't say, well, just go to the disabled toilets because you really need a student to make that choice first yeah. rather than you telling them when identity is such a huge thing. Yeah. Teenagers in general are trying to figure out who they are, mm. let alone being something that they don't understand or that isn't represented, that isn't clear for them. Yeah. It would be so challenging. Absolutely. I just, I just feel like part of the issue as well is that we don't have these conversations consistently. We just kind of chuck it in the too hard basket and leave it and pray that one day we don't have to have that conversation. And when it happens again, we say, oh, we'll look into it, but we never look into it. And I think right. you know, earlier that we're really reactive. Why can't we be proactive for once? Why can't we be the ones who are like, okay, we see that the world is starting to change and modify, so we need to change with it. How can we do that? You literally just said before that students came to you and said we need a safe space. Yeah. We have seen young people dying because they cannot live in the world the way that they are and the way that they identify Mm. wouldn't we have seen that for ourselves as educators like that's you're right like we are constantly having to move with something once there is a tragedy Mm. or once there is something that's already gone too far that's just not good enough I'm pretty sure you were saying that you were presenting or going to present at VATE around representation were you able to do that based on because of COVID yes I did it online which was fantastic and actually suited me better because it keeps me more focused and not into like a ranting mode so I did that and I'm also working on um, an anthology for an editor just working on a teacher guide for a particular collection of short stories that I think are absolutely amazing so I'm slowly getting back out there what kinds of things were you presenting at VATE so VATE is the Victorian English teacher. What does the VATE stand for again? Uh, Victorian Association for Teachers of English, I think. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Um, I was, like me with VELS, no idea. I'm bad with an acronym. <laughs> I was just, um, within my presentation, I was mostly just talking about the importance of queering our curriculums and looking at little ways that we can inject a bit of queer identity 
into what we teach, obviously focusing mostly on English. I also looked at a couple of texts that we can possibly use and how we can use it and why it's so important for student identity um, to feel like they're acknowledged. I think for me, the biggest thing I wanted to try and convey is by not including queer identity within the curriculum, you're reinforcing this idea that we're not worthy queer people are worthy yeah and um they should be celebrated and acknowledged and if we're going to say that we have inclusive classrooms that also includes the alphabet kids and we're not doing it yet can i ask why you say the alphabet kids i just feel like when i say lgbtiq it doesn't come out of my mouth very well it's just Mm. it's just like a verbal thing i just find that i'm always like stammering over the acronym whereas alphabet kids to me is smoother but it also covers everything and we've always got new identities popping up and as much as I like to think I'm on top of it when it comes to LGBTIQ plus ideas and different types of terms I'm not and it's far too hip for me now so at least this way I can include everyone. I had an Indigenous woman on recently and I had the same revelation that I'm having now not the revelation, but it's when you're in that position, you go, yeah, this is actually really unfair for one person to be speaking on such a great, huge issue. And I had that with with Kayla when she came on. I'm like, 3% of the population are Indigenous and here I am asking you to speak on behalf of everybody. Mm. Really unfair that I'm doing that. She's like, look, I appreciate the opportunity, but, yeah, I can't answer everything. Yeah. And it's exactly the same thing. Yes, you can speak about being a gay woman in the experience that you've had and feeling empathy for many people that have sort of an identity in which hasn't been represented but you can't certainly speak for everybody absolutely not and particularly when it comes to gender issues hats off to trans kids like they're amazing they're amazing and talking about their issues in particular is where I feel like it's got to come from someone within the community because they go through I wouldn't say we all go through some type of struggle but for them they have to work with so many different issues in terms of policy I feel like my identity is a little better represented just because I do identify as a, as a cis female. Yeah. And I wonder, is there curriculum around that or is there, you know, are there any texts around that particular topic and that identity that you would recommend that you've seen? Right. Yeah. There's so many fantastic texts around that. Like Parrotfish is one of my favourite novels. Talks about a kid who wants to transition from female to male and the term parrotfish refers to the actual parrotfish that is genderless. Right. And can become a certain gender because it, it feels it needs to become that. So it's like that instinct. And then you've got wonderful books like Ugly Music for Beautiful People, also about trans. There are so many amazing trans books out there, but the problem is finding them, resourcing them. Mm. That's another issue entirely. And I don't think kids always know how to access it. Yes. You also need to have a credit card to be able to order a lot of things. Yes. Well, that's so it's so interesting because I've just had, as I said, Kayla on who was talking about ensuring that we have good representation of Indigenous individuals and ensuring that they are well represented so that they're not the criminals in the story or, you know, something really negative. And unfortunately, those stories are in schools and they tick them off as representing Indigenous people by having them as the criminal Mm -hmm. in a story. I'm like, whoa, that's bad. But also the thing that I find in the English faculty is the struggling between the classics Uh and maintaining the classics. 
and also moving with the times and engagement and there's so many things to consider and then when you get into VCE I mean the the curriculum is set for you anyway you have a choice of very few so I mean in your ideal world how much representation would you see would you see it every year would you see it every second year how much would you like to see in terms of having queer representation in I'm going to say English because I get what you're saying about like science questions and maths questions I mean that's easy you could put that in very easily in terms of a text study my dream absolute ideal would be every second year whether it's a short story short film or a substantial text would be fantastic I will also say it should be equal to having culturally a diverse text text about people with different um, abilities and disabilities Indigenous texts, it should be that balance. We should look at our curriculum and be like, yeah, we're covering all of our kiddos and this meets their needs. What do you think about the classics? Because we do tend to hold on to them. Like there's Romeo and Juliet, Macbeth. They have a long standing in English curriculum. What do you think about those? This is like the controversial question. I like some classics, but I'm not much of a classics teacher, (laughs) to be honest. I'm trying to say it politely. There are parts of Shakespeare I love. But I also do think that there are other texts that are just as worthy to be in the curriculum. So I'm trying to, I've still struggled with the whole, why do we still teach Macbeth at year 10? If you were to look at nearly any curriculum in Victoria or even Australia in general, you would probably find that Macbeth is on the year 10 list in nearly every single school. And it's... It's on our list. Yay! Hold it. (laughs) Yeah. It's one of the texts on our lit list for year 10. You can always pick it. Year 9 is Romeo and Juliet. Sometimes it's Tame of the Shrew if it's a girls' school. So we've just gone with what's safe and we're sticking with things that have already been defined a classic, whereas you look at other texts like, I know, Northanger Abbey. We choose to do Pride and Prejudice over Northanger Abbey. Northanger Abbey was like Jane Austen's first text, yet it was published last. Why don't we choose one of those classics? Mm. Or why don't we choose classics like Waiting for Godot or more plays by British authors? Why are we just sticking with the classic, the classic classics, the yeah. ones that you always expect to see? I feel like sometimes that English curriculum has become so dry and predictable that it's lost its fun. Mm. And I, I feel like over the last two years, that is something that I've definitely struggled with as an English teacher is that I get my class list. I know what year levels I'm teaching. I look at my curriculum and I'm like, meh, that's what I expected to see. Yes. Whereas yeah. in the past it used to be like, oh, my gosh, I can't wait to teach that. Mm. Or, oh, I've never read that before. I'm excited to learn about that. Now it's like year 10, Macbeth, year 11, this, year 12, this. So probably going to offend people by that. But I like the classics in moderation but probably less of a Shakespearean fan mm-hmm. and like more like gothic stuff by like Truman Capote and stuff like that. I'm currently tutoring, and I'm going to get it wrong now, the murder one, what's it called, where there's the... Oh, my gosh, now it's stuck. Now it's gone from my mind. The murder one. Uh, in, in Cold Blood. Yeah, I'm tutoring yeah. that. It's so interesting. It's so interesting. And I think, too, there's a whole heat that goes beyond that, which is like the development of a new genre, right, that crime genre. You know, there's so much history behind a lot of those classics as well which is really interesting I mean engagement's always big too that's always whenever we have these conversations around you know what what are we going to pick oftentimes it's like what's going to appeal to a teenage boy in English have that all the time because they are really the demographic that isn't interested doesn't want to read 
And mm. so really I feel like sometimes mm. we're at ransom to the teenage boys in our classes to try and get them in so that they aren't disruptive. Mm. I definitely understand that. But then I also feel like sometimes we cater to the mm. lower rather than missing definitely. the top as well. And I almost feel like maybe if we elevated our expectations, maybe that would create more engagement. I don't know. It's one of those things that I'm tossing around with this year. I'm trying to work it out myself. But, you know, Truma Capote in Cold Blood, queer text. Yes. Beautiful queer text. Yes, you're right. But it's also beautiful. Yeah. I quite like doing things that I know kids will go and see just for fun. Like Mm. in year eight, we did a text response for the Lego movie. (laughs) It's so cute. Yeah, so the kids just gone to see that. It was when it was first came out. We were like, let's get onto this. We looked at things like female representation in that text. We looked at corporations, greed, capitalism. We looked at all the things that were really quite meaty in that text when you don't realize that it is. Yeah. That's what I like to do. Things that they just kind of absorb. Yeah. Get them to really think about it. I mean, they wouldn't absorb Macbeth. Like having said that, I did see a beautiful Macbeth um, play recently. Like I really do enjoy Macbeth out of all these plays <laughs> but it's <laughs> but it's making those connections and I feel like sometimes when the language is just it feels so dated it makes it so hard to reconnect as much as it's really a naughty version of it the Australian Macbeth depiction was absolutely amazing I love that version it was is Sam Worthington yeah. is that that one yeah 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 like but I would never show that in a school because it's that's a whole other series of issues with consent and getting parents to sign off on it because it was so intense. Yeah. But things like yes. that where it reinvents an original text, I think is really interesting. Which I guess, you know, Baz Luhrmann's done, I suppose, with yeah. Romeo and Juliet to an extent. And it, it does get the kids in, like they're yeah. happy to watch that film at least. Yeah. I touched on it before. You are back at university mm-hmm. doing your master's. Yeah. Let's talk about that. What are you doing? Well, so this is my second master's. Oh, what was the first one? Uh, it was just in teaching and um, with a focus on gifted education. So sorry, to, like that's like a subtle boast, but um, I thought after the first one I would stop. But this second one, I love it. It's with the University of Sydney and it's just a gifted education master's. But within it, you can also do other electives and it's looking at, I've mostly chosen subjects like literacy, looking at improving reading, all the stuff that's really relevant to me. I, like, the problem with me is after a couple of, of years, I get itchy. And I'm like, I need to put myself further. And as soon as I saw this course, I was like, I just, I have to do it. I have to do it because it's everything that I'm interested in. I'm so with you. I've had so many primary school teachers on and I'm like, how do you teach reading? Mm. What do you do without spelling? Because I know what's good for me. I've never been explicitly taught because I'm a secondary teacher. And unless I go out and do my own PD, and I've done some, but unfortunately it is very primary focused. Mm. And so I'm like, I can take some of this, but it's not going to completely apply because it's actually not that much done at a secondary level. It's usually a, a primary program that you have to adapt. And so I am constantly trying to work out how do I get, you know, your 12, 13, 14, 15 year olds mm. to be supported well in reading that's not demeaning yeah. to them? It's really hard. So I'd love to know what are you learning around all of this? Because it's so it's so important for high school teachers. Absolutely. And like going back to like our previous conversation regarding my favorite teacher, she actually has been the person that has reminded me about the importance of reading. So I've mostly taught year 12s over the last couple of years. So as you go yeah. from teaching year 12s, 
I like we never stopped to actually think about reading processes. And her and um, another gentleman did some work with Bait on looking at reading and improving reading strategies. And they actually made this amazing kind of reading strategies approach, which looks at the different ways that we think about reading and talking about like your inner voice, how kids like coach themselves through reading, looking at their metacognitive processes, how kids are aware of how they're processing information. And that's something that I really looked at because I think it's fascinating that so many kids are reading, but they're not taking anything in. They're not even aware that they're taking in content. They're looking at words, but nothing processes at all because they're not using strategies to get themselves back on track. And so that has been something that's really reawakened this within me that for the last four or five years, I feel like I have not dealt with reading. I have not dealt with reading. I've essentially left it up to primary school teachers and I've just assumed that my kids would pick up how to infer meaning. And I feel like Mm. inference and implication is such an issue. Like so many of our kids just cannot get the underlining meaning. They just see the words and that's it. So what are the big strategies that have allowed things to change for you or that you've gone, oh, I can actually embed that into my class and I can see results or I can see improvement for the kids? So I've done some, a couple of different strategies. One of the things that I've actually invested in is doing proper reading journals where I've switched the way I ask questions of kids when they're reading. So in the past, I think maybe I've been way too much focused on comprehension kind of questions, looking at getting the kids to give me like facts. Whereas now I've shifted my questions to be more about, okay, what does this mean? What is implied through this writing? Thinking about authorial intent and also talking to the kids about how I'm reading. So when I'm reading a text, I'll be like, okay, so I'm reading this section. This to me is only descriptive. It's not giving me any information. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to switch my focus to the next section where I can see in the sentence that there is a key idea. And actually showing kids how I read makes a massive difference and they're like oh oh my goodness I also do the same thing or wow that's crazy so you can find the core idea in the opening sentence you know it seems it seems really juvenile but it's things that we assume they can do but they can't yeah and that's where it all falls down isn't it that assumption it is I do think at high school we're really bad at going what were they doing at primary school Mm. why don't they know this and the amount of the amount of conversations I've now had with primary school teachers Mm. I know they're doing it. Mm. The stuff that they're doing is incredible in terms of reading and spelling and all of that. And yeah, we just assume. Hats off to primary school teachers. When I actively chose to become a secondary teacher, it was because I really thought about what it meant to be a primary school teacher. And there's a lot of pressure. Like they're doing the base knowledge. They've got like the biggest, biggest thing to do. We're really looking at the end, the polishing, the editing, finalizing ideas. But they're teaching our kids to read and write and do base maths. If that's not there, they will not get to us. And I think there's always been this idea that we focus on the senior teachers because we're the ones that are working with the ATARs and the study scores. But I tap to primary school teachers, you guys are the heroes. Well, they're the ones that help them inhabit the world. Yeah. And interpret the world, you know, to read, to write, to do basic numeracy. Yeah. Without that, you literally cannot interact with the world in a successful way. Mm. But I will say there has been a change recently and there's been a big movement in base looking at developing more, what is the word for it, more study for undergraduates around language. And 
That'd be great. Improving how teachers use language, how they teach language, how they teach reading, how they teach writing. So I think over the next five years, we're going to see a vast amount of change within tertiary education. We're going to have a bunch of senior teachers that know how to teach reading and writing. And I think that's going to be absolutely amazing because then we're going to be continuing on the work of the primary school teachers as well. That'd be awesome. But rather than it being like yeah. a literacy program that kind of your lowest end kids that are almost illiterate get mm. caught into. And it's sort of the problem is there's so many people that fall through the cracks in situations like that. They kind of get through enough. And some of them shouldn't be there. Like I've got a large amount of kids who are EAL or cold students and they end up in literacy programs. Whilst I understand that maybe they're coming up on test scores is quite yeah. low, they're not meant to be in literacy programs. They're supposed to be taught how to work with the English language. So putting them in a place where it's all about literacy and supporting people who are borderline illiterate or have genuine deficits that means that they can't read or they can't write is entirely yes. unfair. Some of them have been taught amazing grammar. Some of them have been taught amazing sentence structure what they struggle with is keeping up with the pace and the application of English in more sophisticated writing styles let's talk about the gifted I think this is something that's not done particularly well at school at high school because I mean teaching a gifted student and developing enrichment programs is not ever about busy work It is about exactly that Mm. deep thinking and critical thinking and going further into the idea. Mm. So why gifted education? Why do you love it? I love it because this is so much about me as a student as well. So it became really personal over the last couple of years when when everything started to click together. When I looked at my portfolio and why suddenly in year 9 and 10 everything started to click, I started to realise that the reason was people were backing off and treating me independently and I was allowed to pick things and work at my own pace. And I also was able to complete vocational studies. A couple of years later, I had a conversation with my mentor teacher, who is like my best friend. And I said to her, look, I'm kind of feeling like I'm following a lot of the stuff that I'm looking at with gifted kids. Is there a chance that I could be? And she's like, yeah, I've known you were gifted since you were in high school. Okay. But for some reason, all the way through primary school, I was put in the special ed kind of groups, the low-end groups, because the way I think and process information is very creative, I'm quite abstract, I need to move around. On the other side of my spectrum, my sister was put in gifted programs because she performed well in tests. So it's just become like this real personal journey. And then I started working in SEAL programs when I was in the government sector and I just loved what you could do and how passionate kids were about their their gift area and that it wasn't innate necessarily but it was just something that was theirs and they would just love it and then it just it kind of went from there I love developing programs I loved looking at ways that we could teach things that were more engaging looking at applying knowledge rather than just giving knowledge because they already had it stuff like that is there a program that you developed around gifted education that you're really proud of that you'd like to share I'm actually currently um, really fortunate that I developed a new program last year called Advanced English. It is something that I'm so proud of. It's for the year 10s. We've never had an advanced subject of this type at my college. And it took um, 20, no, actually, sorry, 40, because it's 20 in each class, 40 kids in total to come into our advanced program. They were picked based on teacher recommendation. 
based on their scores. And it's an entirely created English curriculum that merges all the different types of VCE English into one and also connects to the VIC curriculum. And the program is very much based around student choice and options. So, for example, our term one was looking at English language. And what we really looked at was an issue that we were interested in. So I've had issues that were sometimes silly. They were like about Prince Harry. And then you've got things about racism and mm. feminism. Mm-hmm. And because it is they're interested in, they're so much more engaged. Yeah. My thought often when I see advanced English is that it's just the same curriculum, but a more sophisticated text or media text. What do you think about that? Because ultimately the tasks don't seem to be that different. It's yeah. just the text is a little bit different or it's a little bit harder or it's one that you would see at year 11 and not year 10. How do we do it better? Because, yeah, you've just groaned at me. Yeah, sorry. It's, it's like that is my least favourite thing, but I know what you're talking about. But that's often what happens. That's often what happens when you get into those advanced classes. It's just, well, we'll just teach them year 11 at year 10. Right. Yeah. You're talking about something very different. So what are you doing? Because it seems to be about learning differently and applying things differently and presenting things differently. So it, for me, it really stems back to knowing my kids. Before we even started teaching them, we looked into who they were. Mm. We looked into what their interests were based on their teacher recommendations, what their skill set were. And we actually created curriculum based around that, which I think is petrifying for teachers to create a curriculum that's tweaked every single year for your cohort because we like to like have one curriculum and just keep it concrete and just keep perfecting it until the study design or something changes whereas this is very fluid it can change based on their needs and that means that sometimes there's not entirely like a set in stone kind of text so for example with our comparative unit our base text is a wizard of earthsea which is a classic but a fantasy classic not what you would expect to see in the year 10 course mm-hmm. But the comparative unit is their text of choice. And that is petrifying for a lot of teachers because it takes away the control from the teacher and gives the control to the kids. And I think that that's really what differentiating to the high bracket is. It's about meeting them where they are and taking them to that next level. We're all about developing that talent. They've already got the gift. Yeah. A lot of them already have knowledge. You don't need to keep putting importing information in there. You need to show them how to apply it. Yeah, and I think as well, it's also about connecting it outside of the classroom. Like we're going to focus when it comes to creative writing about getting an editor in and talking to them about how to become writers. And I think they need to see that their gift can be something. Otherwise, they're going to quit on it. Like I've already had a couple of kids who were like, oh, if I drop advanced English, then I can switch into mainstream English and then pick up chemistry unit two next semester. And it's like, do you like chemistry? No. Why are you doing it? Ata, why are we pushing kids away from their gifts where they could be something great, they could be our innovators, and putting them into subjects just because of a number that they might not achieve if they're not good at it? I've had this conversation so many times. (laughs) Exactly that, exactly that. And it's so funny because what you're describing to me actually sounds very similar to the context unit that used to be run at year 12, which was this, you'd have these big themes, you would have one or two texts that were concrete and then the rest was up to you. You could bring whatever text you wanted, you could bring whatever idea you wanted, you could create whatever platform you wanted. It could be a speech, it could be a news article, whatever you wanted to do. And 
ultimately the reason it got canned was because it was way too hard to assess mm-hmm. because assessors couldn't be all over the things that students wanted to bring in. And I loved, it was probably one of my favourite things to teach. One of the hardest things to mark in terms of consistency across. So I get it because at the end of the day, you want to, the way that the VCE is structured is that it needs to be consistent and you need to be able to put the marks in that will reflect the marks they get for the exam. I get it. But it was one of my favorite things to teach because the kids could find whatever they wanted, right? And whatever style that they wanted. It just, I used to hate when it got to the pointy end of it because I knew I had to deliver something with them that was going to give them the mark that they deserved. And it was very hard to do because it's so subjective. Absolutely. And I agree with that. I love teaching it, hated marking it Mm. because you see merit in anything that they put forward. Like some of their weird and unique ideas that were just so unique and bizarre, you want to reward it. But then if the writing isn't there, you can't because of the criteria. And that's why I think when we've got year seven to 10, we can do stuff like that Mm. because we have the flexibility in terms of our rubric. And maybe our kids will actually love writing still when they go into VCE because I'm fine that I've got kids who pick up a pen and I'm like, yeah, we're going to do creative writing and I'm so excited. And they're like, oh, I hate creative writing. Can't you just give us the answer? Mm -hmm. And that kills me. Like I don't, not everyone needs to be a creative writer, but they should want to create something that's their own. Yes. It's sad that they're so scared of their own voice that they'd much rather just do something that's an answer that they can Google. That's the problem with high school, I find, though. That's the yeah. truth that you get. I used to love teaching year seven mm. because they're not quite, I don't know, conforming to that idea of we're all the same or we must have the right answer. And in order to get the A+, plus, what do I do? They're much mm. more excited to mm. give it a go and, and to get creative. But by the time they're in that middle school band, it's like, what do I need to get to pass? Tell me mm. what it has to look like. And I'm sure there's so many other facets that go along with that. Obviously, school is not their priority necessarily at middle school, but Mm. it's a shame. It's a Mm. huge shame. Absolutely. What are some of your hopes for education in the future, just systemically? I hope that we start valuing teacher voice again. Mm. I feel like over the last 10 years, I've definitely seen that massive shift. And I hope it goes back to valuing teachers and their voice. I hope that we see a far more inclusive curriculum that reflects the Australians we don't just have, but the ones that we aim to have in the future. I hope that we have curriculums that create innovators and leaders rather than passive participants. And I want to see more financial investment in government schools as well. I think we need to bring it back, bring it back to the government schools and more focus on them because I feel like some of the best teachers I have ever seen have been in government schools. Yeah. I'm yeah. biased, but yeah. <laughs> I can see how having all the resources and having the opportunity to spend much more one-on-one time with kids because the classes are smaller is certainly incredibly attractive. Mm. I can totally get that. And that's why I kind of I left government schools is because I felt like it was so hard to do my job and do it well. And I went to the private sector, but I'm also a private school girl too. Okay. Yeah. I didn't do very well in government school. I didn't go there for six months. I hated government school. And um, then I went to a Christian school and then I went back to my private girl school that had encouraged me to move on to a government school. There you go. So I definitely understand the value of private education. I know if I wouldn't have gone to my private girl school, I would not have graduated. But like the government sector, 
it's beautiful. It's beautiful. And the opportunities that you can have are fantastic. Yeah. And it just, you know, as I said, the bleeding heart in me is just like, I just think education should be free. And I think that good people should be there delivering it, even if it costs nothing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think there should be some things in our society that we don't privatise as well. And education is one of them. Big mm. lessons in life. Oh, yeah, learned. absolutely. No, yeah. what are your big lessons? What are your big lessons well, in life? Yeah. Um, well, that being weird or being different can be like a superpower. I found that like the one thing that I tried to keep so like hidden in society was actually the one thing that has made me so powerful, particularly with like my sexuality. I found that like initially I was so scared of telling people, but now kids kind of gravitate towards it and it makes me somewhat unique and it makes me a lot prouder of who I am. And also family can be created. I love that. I've got an amazing family, but my queer fam are just as important. And I think sometimes kids forget that there is more. Like you don't have to always have one type of family. You can have multiple families and you can pull strength from your family. I'm wondering, based on obviously your experience identifying as queer and coming out, do you think that that is the experience that most people are still having or do you think that society has progressed? I mean, look at social media in terms of the platform that a variety of identities have now got. Do you think that the experience is different or do you think that it is still the same or it's still very like potentially fear-based for people? I definitely think it's different because they can find examples of queer identities out there. Like I've never seen so many confident gender queers out there, Mm. but I would definitely say the experiences are the same. Like I've seen still quite a few kids get bullied because of their sexuality Mm. or because of their gender. Or because of their body shape. A couple of years ago, one of my friends, he was gay bashed down in the southeast. Mm. And I think it's more or less the same. It's still very much fear-based, even though we've got all this information and knowledge. But people uh, just view this as a lifestyle and, like, it's a choice. Yeah. I don't know why people would think it's a choice. Like, most of us wouldn't choose to be different. We would choose to be exactly the same so we didn't get harassed or be treated like a minority. So, yeah, to me, it's still very much fear-based. But there is more representation potentially or places to find what you need to see. Mm. It's not in the mainstream, I suppose. Absolutely. And I was talking to one of my kids about that the other day and she was talking about the fact that whilst she's not comfortable yet to talk about her sexuality, she enjoys being able to read things online. That Things like Instagram, for example, Mm -hmm. give her an amazing platform to connect with queer people. And I fully agree, like when you can't find that connection and safety or understanding of your identity in your real life, you can find it online, which is both a positive and a negative. Definitely, definitely. And it's funny that you mentioned body image and I think that's a really important thing to connect in a way to this because I think a lot of people can see that and and that's Mm. a much more tangible topic for some people because Mm. even though body image has changed, like – I'm a product of the 90s and it was all like, you know, that heroin chic, right? (laughs) Yeah. And so for me, and I'm still, I've still got to deal with this. For me, skinny is a compliment. That's what it was. In the 90s, to be not, not fit skinny. And technically that's a, that's not a nice word. That shouldn't be a a positive word. But for me, it is because of the environment that I grew up in as a teenager, really. And that's that, those things stay. Whereas now, that's not what you want to be. 
because you want to have, yeah. you know, you want to be voluptuous and you want to have the perfect skin. You want to have all of these other things, but it's still yeah. a version that is just as unattainable. So mm. even though the goalposts have shifted in terms of what the look is, you're right. There yeah. is still there. The issue is still there. Absolutely. And like, I'll be straightforward. I'm a fat woman. And that is very much part of my queer identity. Mm. And that's why I use the word queer is because fat is still unusual. It's still queer. It's still something that we we fear. We don't want to embrace. Whereas like anyone who knows me knows I'm insanely fit. I'm an avid horse rider. I walk everywhere, carry a lot of junk in my trunk. And I think that's the other thing that's included in our curriculums as well. We don't talk about body image in that respect. I feel like if anything, we kind of shy away from these conversations. But what's interesting with that though is how normalized things like getting like your lips injected yeah. and Botox is becoming. Like one of my kids was saying like for his 18th, he's looking forward to getting Botox. And I was like, whoa. Oh, it's my 18th. So I want to yeah. <sighs> I listened to the podcast. It's the You're Wrong About podcast. I don't know if you've ever listened to it. It's really interesting, but there's one about the obesity epidemic and they actually talk about being fat and obese as a minority group and it's almost the minority group that we don't want to acknowledge is that because oftentimes Mm. a lot of people, like what you were just saying, that health isn't an issue. It's purely Mm. an aesthetic thing because if you went and had a look at their health they are just as healthy as everybody else it's purely Mm. the fact that we associate bad health with a particular aesthetic and that we actually Mm. demonize that it's minority groups that if I said to you know my friend oh you look so much better a couple of kilos lighter Mm. that's a terrible thing to say to someone yeah and it is about making a judgment on a minority group that I have absolutely no right to make and yet we do it all the time we validate people for being thinner and I refuse to do it now refuse because I think that's I don't I don't want to be judging making someone feel like they're more valid because they are Mm. less heavy and it is that podcast is so important to listen to because it literally is yeah it's called you're wrong about it's I think it's the I'll you know what I'll send it to you because it does talk about the fact that there is a societal shaming of that particular body type and that individuals that fit into that body type are a minority group that we actually oppress. It sounds really interesting. I really want to listen to that. Yeah, it's so good. But I think that's another one too. Like, We could talk forever, Naomi, but that's, it's good to know (laughs) that, you know, the identification of yourself is including not just your sexuality, but your body type, but your intellect, you know, all of that. That's amazing. Yeah. And it's taken a long time to get to this point. And you know what? I'm going to have a crisis again and reevaluate but yeah it's it's definitely it's all interconnected and it's kind of awesome yeah. in a way yeah a friend yeah. of mine said to me recently she said I'm, I've got to realize that I'm a size 12 to 14 I was a size mm. 10 but I've got to let it go I'm not a size 10 anymore I'm not going to be mm. a size 10 again because to be a size 10 would be to give up my happiness I have to embrace <laughs> the fact that I'm a size 12 to 14. I'm like, do it. Yeah. And I think like more people need to do that. Like my one of my, my sister has had two kids mm. in a short space of time mm-hmm. and her body has changed so much. And she really, really struggles with that. Mm. The fact that her body was once this amazing fit machine and she's tiny. Like, I mean, she's Audrey Hepburn tiny. And it's about shifting that focus to being like that body gave me my two beautiful kids and it's still banging. It's still beautiful. Exactly. And it's changing that yeah. Well, you've, I've had a, 
a friend on who talks about exactly that, that your body is your vehicle to inhabit the world. So allow it to be that. Ooh, that's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much for everything. I've learned so much from you. Thank you for also being one of my first, as I said, follows on Instagram. It's been You're awesome. Up. Thank you for having me. Such a pleasure. I adore you. Oh, you too. Yes. <laughs>